Welcome to Careers Unwrapped, where we delve into real-life career stories from successful people who've been through it all, the ups and the downs. We'll get their raw, honest, actionable advice and be the careers talk they wish they'd had when they started out. As someone who has had a varied career, from soldier to salesman, expedition leader to entrepreneur, he knows firsthand that your career doesn't always lead you where you expect it to. Here's your host, Mark Fawcett. So hello and welcome to Careers Unwrapped. I'm your host, Mark Force, and with me today is Marvin Rees. Marvin is the mayor of Bristol. He's had multiple leadership and strategic roles. He's had a very interesting and varied career. So hopefully Marvin's going to be talking honestly and frankly about his career's highs and lows, the realities of working in politics and the skills he's needed to develop along the way. So I'm really looking forward to it. Marvin, welcome to the show. Hi, how are you? Very well, thanks. I think let's just kick this off with a bit of background in terms of where in your life did you start developing an interest in careers, an interest in a career in politics and government? What were the motivations that took you down that path? Well, I was interested in politics. I don't think I would say I was interested in what I would call a career in politics. But I grew up in what you might call quite challenging circumstances with my mum not much money and the rest of it. And I saw her disrespected as a young person. I think routinely, and I was very aware of our own low status in society. And I was also aware of just unfairness around the world, be it racial, around people just being poor. And so I think I grew up with a desire to do something about that. And so before I thought of politics, I knew I wanted I had a desire to be what I now understand as being political. And I had decided not to be involved in main, what I call mainstream politics. I was too radical and too pure. And by the time I reached my late teens, as I thought, to get involved in such a dirty business. But as I grew up and matured a bit more, I thought, actually, do you know what? I can do something and I should get involved, even if I'm not perfect and politics isn't perfect. You know, I can get involved. And then gradually realized that there were opportunities to get paid and be able to pay your bills while you're involved. And in your earlier years then, what practical impacts did what you've just described have on your life? Being treated differently because of race and cultural background, because you were poorer than people around you in within your family. So what differences did that actually make to how you lived your life day by day? Well, it meant life was constant worry. We always worried. My mum worried a lot about bills, you know, about how we were going to get things. And there were times where we didn't have food in the house. I always remember a, a bill coming, an electricity bill for £88. This is all we talked about in the house for ages. We didn't know where it come from. We had an electric meter for a while. When it's a 50p drops and you don't have 50 pence to put in, that's it. You just sit there with no electricity unless you can find 50p from a member of the family somewhere else, which we had some very supportive. My mum had a very supportive aunt around the corner and my grandparents as well. Um, on a very raw level, racism presented itself in a very raw way. So I could be chased down the street by people calling me names. It was not unusual for me as a young kid to have adults drive past and tell me and my friends to go back to our own country or use other names to describe us that I won't sully your podcast with. 
I've just been putting together some memories for someone. And I just remember the, the time that a police come and, you know, raided my house and then quite unjustifiably. And then when my mum went along the station to put in a complaint, we saw the very same plainclothes officers in there, Ford Cavalier, what it was outside Trinity Road. And they laughed at us when we were going into complaint because we were nothing to them. So those feelings of being on the margins of being nothing really have, you know, been a drive for me and a drive to be something that be someone who can protect my family, but to overturn the way the rules run so other people don't have to experience that kind of second class or even third, fourth class status in this country and this world. So that is clearly very raw still and real. And obviously your work as mayor of Bristol has been shown across the UK. What did you take forward from that as a first step in terms of taking some action before you stepped into anything you could describe anywhere near to mainstream politics? What are the first things you did say, I'm going to do something? I mean, straight out of, I first off, it informed the degree, the degree I chose. I went to study politics and economic history at university. Straight, I had wanted to join the Royal Marines, actually, but my eyesight didn't let me go in. So after university, when I didn't quite know what to do, um, I went to work for Tier Fund, a development agency, and working with the poorest people in the world in over a hundred countries at the time, including the UK. And started to do not just international development, but advocacy work, campaigning work. So Tier Fund was involved in the, the beginning of Jubilee 2000, the campaign to cancel developing world debt. They were very early drivers within the fair trade movement, you know, as well, working on anti-slavery campaigns, anti-landmines uh, campaigns as well. Then I went to Washington, D.C. I worked for an organization called Sojourners, a guy called Jim Wallace, very close to Obama. Uh, but they were working on the aftermath of the civil rights movement, really, and really challenging U.S. institutions on their domestic policy and their foreign policy on the intersection of race, class, and faith and poverty. So I always pursuing organizations and people through which I would be able to live out what I thought would give my life meaning and purpose and significance. And that was trying to change the way the world is run. There's a quote that I always remembered that stayed with me from Martin Luther King. So we've got to do the food distribution and deal with the consequences of poverty. But King said, we're all caught to play the Good Samaritan. But one day we need to question the very nature of the Jericho Road on which people keep being robbed. And so I started to think, well, how can I move up stream to question the very circumstances within which people being turned out with lower life expectancy, with hopelessness, on a, seem to be on a systematic basis. See, you mentioned there the people and the attitudes who were trying to keep you down, who were knocking you back through all of your early life. And then you mentioned Martin Luther King as an inspiration. Were there people around you in your earlier years who supported you, who encouraged and drove, sort of almost people if you could reach back and say a thank you to? Who helped I'm careful in the way I talk about it. I mean, there were people who would be openly hostile and negative towards me, my mum, and people like me and my mum, right? That's just the way the world works. And then there were these disembodied institutions, as it were, in which we didn't, I didn't exist as Marvin Reese, 
I was just a poor mixed race kid, right? And they wouldn't necessarily directly target me, but by virtue of my characteristics, that system just didn't work for us, right? And would behave negatively towards us. But I had some very important interventions. Um, I started boxing, which was hugely important for me. Uh, gave me self-esteem, and I didn't have much self-esteem. Taught me to fail, discipline, structure, and all the rest of it. And my coach, Jimmy, uh, was really important. Um, I did have a, importantly, I had a loving family. My grandparents were really important. My aunt, Renis, and my cousins, Dennis and Anthony, always, they were older than me, but they really spoke positively into my life. Um, it was them that actually gave me my sense of adventure and put me on track to try to join Marines when I was a, a kid, which, which ultimately I didn't do. But during the course of going through the process of trying to join, it opened up opportunities for me that I wouldn't have discovered. Um, if I hadn't been pursuing that as an option, I had a very important teacher called Mr. Jennings. This one goes out to all the teachers, actually, because Mr. Jennings wrote in my school report, I was lost as a 13, 14 year old, mixed race kid in 1980s Britain. You know, I could be chased down the street by people calling me whatever you and this, that and the other. So I knew I wasn't white and I wasn't totally welcome in this country. Um, even though my white heritage is strong. And at the same time, one of my black friends said to me on the way to school, Marv, so in a war between black and white, whose side are you going to be on? Because I was a half-caste kid. If you could talk about it, I was half-caste, half-breed, an object of suspicion in some senses. And I was lost in the middle of that. So I was having a tough time um, for many reasons, that and my poverty. But Mr. Jennings wrote a school report because I had started to act up to try and pretend I didn't care about school. But he wrote, Marvin, the war could be your oyster. But the way you're behaving, you're not going anywhere. And anyway, there was a lot around it, but I trusted Mr. Jennings and I took that school report home and I read it as a, just about to turn 15. And I thought, and it just hit me. I read it over and over again, sat on my bed in my house in Eastern and it hit home. And I decided that I would go to school the next day and I would try and do something. You know, when I first ran for election, some, how many years, kind of nearly 30 odd years later, I invited Mr. Jennings to the launch of my election campaign and he came and we did it at my old school where he taught me. And after I did my interviews, I said, Mr. Jennings, it was really important. Thanks for all you did for me. You, I said, you wrote that school report for me. Do you remember writing it? And he said, no. And I've said to teachers, you never know, right? Your words, someone may come back 30 years later and tell you that you said something to them that made all the difference in the world. They may never come back and tell you that, but never doubt that your words are landing in people's lives. Yeah, I think as both teachers, but also as parents, you underestimate the impact sometimes that one set of words at one particular point in time can make. Because, of course, you're communicating all the time. But at some point, especially in your role now, meeting a lot of young people through the work that you do, some of the things you say will wash over them, but some of them will land and you may never know which young people they've landed with and the impact that they've had on them as well. You mentioned that you'd looked at the Marines, but your eyesight didn't let you in. I Many, many years ago, I was in the army for a number of years and I trained young soldiers, many of whom had a variety of really tough and challenging backgrounds. And I saw with them over time the impact that someone believing in them guidance, discipline, all of these sort of things combined worked really well for a lot of them. Sometimes 
it didn't work for them. But for a lot of them, it really gave them that lift. So from your side, you chose a very strong, robust education route, university, further learning beyond your degree there. And, and that gave you a, a lift up. But you drove that yourself. When did you first decide to move into active politics, something where you had to be elected? You mentioned your first stab at that was about 30 years ago. Yeah, well, I would say, by the way, one of the, I did pre-RCB as well, as well as a PLCB, POC, Central Officers course, and an AIB. And I passed all those, which was a, that intervention for this kid, he would turn up. I mean, if you're in the army, you'll know. I turn up, I'm from a state school, I'm a mixed-race kid, and I'm on these officers' courses, right? And I've just written about that because I did all right on those things. And suddenly, I thought, well, I'm with all these guys. They've been bred to lead, and I haven't. That's one of the things I first discovered. I managed to overcome, and my fitness is okay with the boxing, so that obviously helps loads. So it's a massive intervention uh, for me. But one of the things that really attracted me about the military was I thought it was straightforward. Go in, don't be an idiot, be fit, and there's a structure right in front of you, right? And I was terrified of being cast adrift on this big open ocean of the world with multiple options that I didn't quite understand of how to put in life together, which I ultimately ended up doing because I didn't <laughs> get it. That is so familiar. I was lucky enough, I did get through. I had eyesight that was okay. I went to Sandhurst. And when I started there in my platoon of, of training officers, I was the only one who hadn't been in the OTC, the Officer Training Corps at university. All of the rest of them had. So even the really simple things for them, like being shouted at, standing to attention, knowing what a staff sergeant was as opposed to a sergeant or corporal, they had that layer in there. And it, oh, it was tough for the first couple of weeks without that layer. And I can imagine from... Your background as well, you would have seen in the selection courses a lot of young men who were very, very different in terms of background and education. As you said, they had been bred to be leaders. Now, you are now in a leadership position and a very important one where you can affect both communities and individual lives. How have you developed as a leader from that first understanding during those military assessment course that you had something there how have you developed from then to the leader you are now today so there's a few stories about that and actually i was profoundly impacted by by hanging around with military but also other things like my boxing and watching my family if i start how it's impacted my leadership one is self-belief and um, when i got to university i met students from very wealthy backgrounds for the first time, kids who've been to boarding school and all the rest of it. And which I got on the right. I played rugby at university, and, you know, so that actually drew its own kind of particular demographic as well. And I used to feel inferior to these kids. They had cars, you know, I went to visit someone in, in his house that was just outside Surrey in Guildford and his dad was a trader and all this. And there's me from a two-up terrorist on Stabilton Road. And I said to my friend, it's actually something I've discovered that I did do. I said to my friend the other day, I wish I knew then what I know now, because I would have said, when you're talking down to me, and they did on occasion talk down to me, and they used to make jokes about black people being criminals, kind of having banter. I would have said, well, how much did your parents spend on your education? Well, 300 grand, 400 grand? And you're at the same university as me. 
So your parents must be gutted because they didn't drop a few hundred thousand pounds for you to be at the same university as this state-educated kid, right? And the flip side of that, by the way, is that pound for pound, opportunity for opportunity, hour for hour, I've done better than you. And that's not a statement of arrogance. But I do share that with young people as they're coming through. Young people I interact with a lot from backgrounds in which they may go off to a Russell Group University or Oxbridge and they come from poverty. That moment in time, that's a truth you can drop. They should be there. So why are they trying to take any credit for it? You shouldn't be there. So you should be taking all the credit in the world. And as an army officer, you'll know that, right? It's not just did, did someone coast through the program, it's what did they do with what they had in front of them. And that, if you can, I've said to them, if you can get a hold of that truth and own it, your background of deprivation or hardship will be less of a burden, a source of embarrassment and become your superpower because every day you know how far you've come. But there's a story, I went up to Lake District as a young guy trying to join the Marines, there were 16 of us up there, 12 going to become naval officers or planning to, and four for the Marines. And we did this exercise on the hills that day. And a Royal Marines officer, they gave the debrief at the end of the day, because we'd all started running up the hills. I mean, all testosterone flying all over the place. You know, no one wants to be the first to stop running, snot running down your nose, because this window and you're up on the lakes. He got us back and he said, you guys, you think that being a great Royal Marine officer is about carrying 100-pound packs up mountains. So there's an element of that that's true. But the best officer will find the best map reader and give him the map, the best shot and give him the rifle, and the fittest guy and give him the heaviest bergen. And then they will get by on four hours sleep so the guys can have six. And obviously, I've never forgotten that as an 18-year-old, that what is world-class leadership? It's about finding out what people are good at and then creating the conditions for them to be excellent at what they do and not asking them to be less than excellent. And then I'm also being sacrificial. So then you've got to do the four hours so they can have six and never complaining about it. And I sometimes wonder what I am as a mayor. I've got people around me all the time who are more expert than me. And I think, what's the ingredient? Well, the ingredient I need to bring is being the person that one is excellent, people are willing to work with. And secondly, never asking them to be less than excellent. And so with that knowledge over time that you've built up, how would you perhaps, if you could, go back in time to your younger self, how would you advise 18-year-old, 20-year-old Marvin in terms of do this, don't do that? I do it with my own children now. And I say this to other young people as well all the time. I said, build your assets because you'll be in a world, this isn't, sometimes get frustrated with people who just call themselves like optimists. Not that I'm not optimistic. I prefer the word hope because hope grapples with the idea that, like, that there is a thing called suffering. There's a proverb I quite cite a lot, and it says, we don't despise our suffering because suffering produces perseverance, character, and character hope. Again, you've obviously overcome something. You'll know that. You find out who you are. You discover character through challenging circumstances. And to me, that deals with the world the way it is, rather than just saying, Do you know what? In every circumstances, I'm just going to see the glass as half full. But sometimes the glass is half empty, <laughs> you know, and that's the reality of it, right? But I say to my boys and, and other young people, I want you to build three assets because sometimes in the world, people will make decisions or institutions will behave in a way that work against you. And if you've got your own assets, you'll be able to stand up against that and make your way. One asset is be intellectually strong. So read, right? Make sure no one can turn you over with a couple of sentences. 
you don't have to be Einstein, but just be a smart, right? And you can acquire that. The second is to be fit. I think being physically fit, one is about presentation, about life control is good for you, but also impacts on your intellectual strength as well. And the third point I make is to be of good character so that when you say something, people believe that you believe you're, what you're saying is true. There's an incredible amount of power in being someone who's known as telling the truth. So that even if someone doesn't like you and doesn't like what you're saying, they know when you are saying that you either disrespect the way they behaved or that you think a situation is the way it is, they know they can bank on the fact that you're telling the truth. And I think I kind of group things in those and I would say that to my young self. What I would do is I would tell my young self to be more relaxed. I've always been intense. I struggle to relax. I worry a lot still today. And I wish I'd made, I developed habits earlier to make more space to actually enjoy life as well as just working, grinding through life. So with the, the knowledge you were building in your 20s, I presume, and with the skills and with the education you were getting, at some point you said that you now wanted to take was actually to move into politics, to become an elected politician. How does somebody start down that route once they've decided that's what they want to do? I mean, in a practical way, how do you first get elected into a political role? So the big broad background is you have to have built some assets out there. Yeah. So I've been, I, when you talk about having a varied career, I would call it chaotic, actually. There was no, I'd lost that structure that I talked about earlier on that I wanted to pursue. <laughs> and so I was looking everywhere. Where can I go to do something? I just want to do something. And I was grabbing any opportunity that came and it was structured. But looking back, what I have is a collection of experiences that I'm able to give organized book meaning on. The practical route in was this. I had actually sworn off politics. I think it was young enthusiasm. I just thought politics corrupting and could not be saved. And I would never study myself and sell out by getting involved. And I then got involved in an organization called Operation Blackbone that was set up by Simon Woolley, who's now Lord Simon Woolley. And they were looking at the lack of black and Asian people voting initially. And that moved into, well, we should get more black and Asian people elected. And Simon, and that's, look, that's talking to the political parties, but it's also talking to people like me. And Simon gave me a very blunt challenge one day. He said, Marvin, you've got a great analysis on why the world is so rubbish. What are you actually going to do about it? I get up, join a political party, put yourself forward for selection and get elected. And that was the route in. And there was various basic levels. I joined the Labour Party. I started helping out going to meetings and helping out with delivering some leaflets. I mean, the pathway into politics is not glamorous, to be honest. I mean, it seems like that, but it is on cold doorsteps with people slamming the door in your face sometimes and telling you you're all the same. But you've got to put those hard yards in. And once I existed, then I was able to put my fell forward as candidate. The route to mayor is was very specific. Um, I'd actually been in the United States. I had an amazing opportunity to go to Yale University. And while I was there, a professor said, I think you'd be more interested in executive politics rather than legislative politics. A guy called David Bird, who's still very close to me today. And um, I came back to the UK in 2011. Labour Party were running a future candidates program that I was on as well, that I put myself forward for. Um, I went to that. They were talking about MPs in one room. They talked about mayors in another. I didn't even bother going to the mayor's room. Um, then came back to Bristol. Bristol had a referendum. And then a friend of mine, a woman called Margaret Hickman, 
was a counselor, older woman, and amazing. She said to me, you should put yourself forward to become the mayor. I'd never even thought about it. And I did think about it that night. And then I said, okay. And then I put myself forward and interest around my candidacy began to grow. And I was selected and ultimately I lost the first election and I ran again in 16 and won that election. So how did it feel, that first election, both preparing for it, working at it, not winning it, and what you took or learnt from that first result? whole bunch of things, right? So in one sense, I was like a frog in slowly boiling water. I became a candidate. I had no idea what it was going to be like. So I didn't always have time to reflect on what it felt like bringing in increasing levels of media attention and popular attention. It moved so quickly once I was on that train. So that was interesting. It did begin to feel really meaningful because there were people from backgrounds like mine that were really taken by it. And I would say there was a bit of kind of a universal parallel. When I was trying to train the Marines, I was apparently going to be the first British-born Black War Marine officer. And then when I was going for mayor, I was going to be the first in the Black African heritage from the mayor of any major European city. And obviously I lost in 12. That was painful, not least because the person that won it was quite a wealthy guy, but running on a, he'd resigned from political parties and ran in his independent and then started complaining about the political establishment. And apparently I became a representative of the political establishment. Like, hold on, you're probably educated. Winchester College or whatever, Russell Group University in the 60s, and I'm the establishment, you know, and I found that personally quite painful. But I think it is a thing at the moment. A lot of rich people who are absolute establishment characters claiming to be anti-establishment. It seems to be a fashion from Trump to Johnson, Farage, you know, and all the rest. But anyway, I won't criticize your podcast. Well, I don't think you get anybody claiming to be establishment. I think one of the surest signs that you are the establishment is that you can go on national TV and in the papers and slag off the establishment and you're not then defined as having a chip on your shoulder. If I did, I'd be this kind of angry black man or a working class warrior or whatever. Um, losing that was painful and I was embarrassed. But actually what I would also say is I said during my concession speech that maybe there's a greater good in me losing. I didn't feel that, but there was a piece of me that believed it. And actually I think that's true. Because it was only a few weeks after I lost that selection, I was in a room with, with young people from backgrounds like mine. And I was able to say, look, I stood up in front of 460,000 people as a failure. And I'm still standing. Right? You've got to keep going. And they were then like surprised to hear that I went to the same school as them and I grew up in their, their area. Because by that time, I started to become a bit of a TV presence rather than a real world presence. In their world, anyway. And then, yeah, I ran again in 16. And all those feelings I'd had of overturning the world began to become real. I was able to be walk home to my mum's house along Stapleton Road, where I grew up in the 80s, as the mayor of Bristol, seeing people I went to school with and saying hello. That was very incredibly special. It must have been amazing, some of the responses from the people who'd known you as a youngster, as a teenager, early 20s to see you, but also to see this figurehead in Bristol demonstrating what you can achieve. How did that come across? Did you hear from them? Did they speak to you? Did you get messages after you first won election? Oh, yeah. Like, loads. 
Yeah, I mean, and I'm wary of this because I don't ever want to sit here and come like I think I'm anything special and, and all the rest of it. But it would be silly of me to step away from or deny the fact that me being this mixed race kid from a single white woman who was bringing me up in proper kind of Catholic home type era in which other mixed race kids were taken from their parents and put in a care system. I mean, my mum was told to put me up for adoption when she had me in 72. If she was a good woman, she was told that's what she would do. To overcome that, I got five C's at GCSE. I wasn't allowed to go to two of my classes. I was dropped after the fourth year, year 10, because you know my behavior was not great. To come from all that, end up the mayor of this very city. And downstairs is in this building is the cash hall. It's where people used to come and pay their rent. My mum come and pay their rent. And I have a memory of being a child coming in this building with my mum and people being incredibly rude to her. And she came in to see me one day, disrespectful to her, really. She came in to see me one day in my office and we walked through the cash hall. And now I'm the mayor. And I said, mum, you used to pay your rent in there, didn't you? She said, yeah, I remember that. And it matters. And then I was out the other night. We stayed at my mum's for a couple of weeks while we were leaving the house. And my boys love football and they were at the front of the house playing football with all the kids. This is a part of the city where there are a lot of migrants, a lot of Syrian kids, Somali kids, African kids down there. And I went out to play football with them. And um, they were, the kids were going, are you the man? I said, yeah. And they went, where's your security? I said, there's a guy up in his flats looking at us down here, just joking around there. And they kept talking to me and then dawned on me. How many of them would be playing football with the mayor of their city on a Friday night on a scrap of grass in an area in the top 1% most deprived. So for all the stuff that we've done around house building, bringing Channel 4 to Bristol, signing a billion pound deal on energy decarbonization, getting 100 million to revamp Temple Quarter, those moments like that, they really matter to me and I hope they matter to those young kids. Politics itself, and it's interesting you describe there in the same sentence, both the, the big money, the big ticket items, which invest in infrastructure and community, but also down to the individual person, child even, and their lives. So you first win election and now you actually have the job to do. And we know from our a lot of research we do with young career starters, young people as well, that trust in, in politics and politicians is so low at the moment with views of, of corruption, of confrontation, of compromise. And then you're now actually in the job and you've got to deliver. What are the realities you discovered about how hard that job can be, the compromises you have to make in it, the ways in which you have to both hire and bring together the right sort of people? What was it really like once you got the job? I came in middle of austerity. You know, we were kind of six, seven years in. We were just about to have the Brexit vote, an increasingly febrile political climate. So it's very challenging coming in anyway. Secondly, I don't think the organization expected me to win. So one of the biggest challenges was making sure the organization would now begin to respond to political leadership. This is a challenge most politicians will recognize. There was a piece on Radio 4 a few weeks ago, Evan Davis was talking with people about the concept of rubber handles. People get into national government, they pull on the handle of the civil service and they just bend. Don't prize your fingers off. They just say, yeah, yeah, pull away. We'll just absorb your thoughts <laughs> and make no difference. So we then, we were like, well, how do we make sure this organization does respond to what we wanted to do? 
can't just say, well, that was the old political leader. Here's a new one. Yeah, sit in your office, you know, have your political debates and we'll crack on. We wanted to make a priority on housing delivery. We had to turn this organization into an organization that delivered houses. Uh, we wanted to be very aspirational. We wanted to make sure children were fed, had a priority on child hunger. That was a massive challenge. Steve Bullock was a mayor of um, a London borough. He was Lewisham. And he said to me, before I was elected, he said, when he got into office, he walked in and there were all these levers, metaphorical levers. And we found when he pulled on them, they weren't connected to anything. So we had to get someone in and make sure that his levers he had available to him were connected to the organization and to the city. I think the second challenge is something that people don't often appreciate is, yes, I am the mayor, but I do not have command and control power in Bristol. There are lots of points of sovereignty within Bristol. Now, I clearly have some power and influence, but the National Health Service is its own organization, right? It's not accountable to me. It's a massive presence in the city, both providing services and employer. Universities in Bristol are like small towns, tens of thousands of students under the sovereignty of the University of Bristol and University of West of England. And so actually, we developed an approach that Andy Marsh, our former chief constable, described as convene and ask. World-class public leadership is not about what you control, it's what you can influence. And what you can do as a political leader is get people in a room around a shared goal. It goes back to that story I told, I think, as a young man, a mockerkin with that Royal Marine officer. You don't have to have all the answers. And actually, that would be bad leadership. You need to get the right people in the room with the right skills and ask everyone to be excellent at what they do, but also be minded of what other people need to do as well. Those are huge challenges. Um, I've been shocked, even more shocked at the poor quality of the political debate. And that is a lack of awareness of the fact that it's a complicated world and good things can have negative consequences for some people. And you're not always choosing between good and bad. Sometimes you're choosing with least, what's the least worst option. And that's something that's facilitated, this is dangerous for me to say, by a media now in which you do have some outstanding journalists, but we're not being honest. The fact that the business model for some of the media is about generating clicks as so it has to be sensational. Sensation is so popular. So some of the interpretation of what is legitimate political debate becomes hits back, hits out, slams back and forth. So politicians feed the media, media feed the politicians, and it takes us down a bit of a rabbit hole. I see that myself as somebody who needs to stay in touch with different viewpoints, political viewpoints, because they affect a lot of the areas I work in and around education, young people, social mobility, and those sort of areas that the right-wing press has got steadily more and more right-wing over the last five or six years and the left-wing press steadily more and more and so finding that voice that is not apolitical or that is apolitical that's more in the center is harder and harder to get i think it's very interesting here you can describe actually getting things done as a mayor it seems to be far more about how you can use your personality your leadership skills to take people on a journey far far more that than your ability to be able to say, I'm going to make a decision. So we do make decisions all the time. And Bristol City Council has a billion pound budget. So we provide services. But if I give you an example of that, um, in spring 2022, we were just ramping up into the cost of living crisis. I have a pattern in my diary that I meet with frontline community development workers once a month. So we were looking at how we prepare for the cost of living crisis. And I said in that meeting, all right, but at least in the spring, people are turning their heating off. We know that at the end of 2022, 
fuel bills are going to skyrocket. So what happens in a cost of living crisis where people need to put their heating on? So we come up with this idea of warm places, which David got described as warm banks, right? And we call them welcoming spaces in the end. Places people could go to be warm when they couldn't put their heating on. So we set out, long story short, to set up 25 warm places around Bristol. We ended up with 106, right? But that's because we didn't go and say, right, here we are, we're Bristol City Council, here's our budget, we're going to establish a warm place. We offered an idea to the city and a framework, and what we found was that faith groups, community organizations came forward and said, that's what we want to be, and then became those things. It was incredible to go from 26 to, to 106. And so, yeah, I, that goes back to that convenient ask and the kind of leadership you offer, not command and control, or I'm going to do everything for you. I will do some things for you when I have to, but ultimately we wanted to get development approach to leadership. We'll create the conditions in which we can get stuff done together. I actually think that's a better politics. It's one of the ones that I've grappled with with my chief of staff over the years. And we've talked about going into elections where we don't want to say, we well, here are five things I'm going to do for you. And with these five things, I'm going to purchase your vote in this kind of consumerist transaction. I want to say to people, look, this is the world we're in. These are the challenges you want to focus on. Are we the kind of people you want to work with to take those challenges on? Not that I'm going to come up and solve all your life's problems for you, right? Um, it doesn't fit into a leaflet, so it makes it a difficult one, but we've tried to have that approach. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole nother conversation and how much people perhaps expect government and politics to be able to fix things for them versus how much is down to them and the pull-up the political environment is trying to create the environment for them to move on rather than hold them in their hand the whole way through their life. It's so tricky. I mean, your job is not one I would pick myself. And so what's next for you then, Marvin? Where, where, where next? Just have to be a bit careful on that last point because it's like we can say truths and draw different conclusions. Um, I think government does have a role. Absolutely. I'm a left of politics. If you just leave systems to run, we find our stronger, we get weak, exploited and weak. And there has to be an intervention. Housing market, we intervene. We do it with our children. We don't talk to our children of mixed abilities and say, well, I'm going to treat you all the same. We say to our children, Hey, I see my child. This child has this skills and abilities and weaknesses. This child has this skills, ability and weakness. And we treat them differently. And that's the way we should do. Government has that role to intervene in the economy their politics and treat people differently. But what I have said to people is that I'm not bringing my children up to be dependent on public services. All right? That's not a dignified life. And I think sometimes people define government wholly in terms of services when my aim of my kind of politics is powerful communities who have power irrespective of what decisions government does not make. Goes back to my point about building assets. So I call it a community development approach to political leadership. So that's just one of the, you know, before they start calling me, uh, as we, you know, <laughs> I knew he was a conservative. I think also what you described there for me is a little bit about the difference between management and leadership. And sometimes in politics, we can see management, you know, we will provide this many, this amount of budget for these services that will be run this way. There will be these targets for who these services support and how many. And leadership is more about painting a picture and a vision and use the word hope earlier about 
how things can be different and how things can be better. Because if people buy into that, as they did with your warm spaces, they buy into it, they'll do a lot more of it for themselves, not just expect government to solve it for them. So there's a balance, it seems to me, in your type of role, especially in a, a mayoral and executive role between leadership and management and having both of those. And you need both of those strengths in that type of role. You need both. My health warning on that is, but what you can't have is government saying, we're going to cut 10 million. We'll give you a grant for a hundred thousand and then tell you to get on with it. We can't have that kind of trickery going on where we're government abdicates responsibility and it says, well, we're doing a development. No, no, no. You have to front load investment in people's skills and capacity so that they are in a more powerful position, more able to do stuff. That, some of that would be informed by my work with Tier Fund, right? Tier Fund is an interventionist organization that goes into situations of poverty and says, right, we're going to work with you to help you overcome. But Tier Fund would also have said, but if we're still doing stuff for you, we're doing the stuff that we were doing in year one and year 10, we failed because all we've done is taken some kind of colonial approach to some African village and made them dependent on Western donors. So there has to be a chain when we do intervene, the nature of that relationship has to change during time. That's what I've tried to bring in my politics. We've ever been successful. I don't know, but that's what we're going to, to be. Now, one area we've both been involved in is youth expeditions. You're the president of the British Exploring Society, and I, many years ago, used to lead expeditions of young people, particularly into mountains and jungles of South America. Why are you involved with that? What have you got out of that? And what have you seen in terms of its impact upon young people? So I got into it initially because I had that real sense of adventure. I think my, actually my cousin joined the army and it's so my cut, my home as a kid, I really wanted adventure. And my, I think my teacher saw that and it was actually Bob Jennings, the teacher I mentioned earlier, came in one day and said, Marvin, there's this thing called British Schools Exploring Society. Do you want to, do want to go to Iceland? I was like, yeah. And I applied the first year. I didn't have enough experience. So he sent me up to Mocker, to Lockheel, some winter skills course in February with my best mate, Tyree. And got my winter skills and applied the next year and went off to Spitsbergen. It was, again, one of those pivotal, life-changing moments for me. I was climbing mountains that no one ever climbed before, falling down a crevasse, nearly dying. Didn't have a rope on, very silly, so gracia. Cooking on an open fire, sleeping in an igloo, cross-country skiing. One of the profound moments actually was on our adventure phase when they just gave four of us, a, they gave us maps and said, see you in three days. You know, four 18-year-old kids just walked off, climbed a mountain that no one ever climbed before, sat on the top at midnight while the sun went round. And actually, what, what was so profound for me in that moment, I was looking out o- over an area called Trollheim, hundreds of mountains and glaciers, and I could see lakes and fjords in the distance. And I looked down below me and there was a, a crevasse. And I thought, if my body fell down that crevasse, no one would ever see me again. And I was incredibly aware of the fragility and the smallness of my life in the face of all I was seeing. But ironically, when I was aware of how small and fragile my life was, I was intensely aware that I was alive. Aware as I was alive more than I probably had been up to that point. And that was profound for me. And I want that for other people. Getting outside of the boundaries of my life, getting outside of Bristol was hugely important to give me a sense of hope and life's purpose. So now with British Exploring Society, 
that's what we do. We give young people more backgrounds and opportunity to experience adventure and hopefully it's a life-changing adventure. Marvin, thank you so much for coming on today. There's so much I've taken away from this. And I know we haven't even touched on some of the roles you did earlier in your career in terms of journalism, NHS and other areas like that. But you've banked skills, you've banked experiences, you've clearly reflected on them as well over your time. And I think that there are three things in particular which you describe, which I take away from this, which you described as your assets and the need for everybody to build those assets, to be intellectually strong, to be fit physically and mentally fit, and also to have strong character. And those three things I particularly take away from this. And I think anybody starting out in their career, whatever direction they're going, could benefit well from taking that on board. There is one question we often ask at the end of this. We want to keep passing on this baton of careers experiences and careers stories to sort of help inspire people starting out in an earlier stage in the career. And is there anybody else who you think we should get on here whose career experience, whose career story would be both useful, interesting, and hopefully inspiring to others? I think there's a number of people start rolling through my mind. It's painful to have to choose one. I tell you what, very interesting man called Grant Mansfield. Grant comes from a working class background, but he founded uh, Plimpsol, which is a production company, television company. Plimpsol is the, the largest independent production company outside of London. And at the moment, I think it's the world's second largest producer of natural history broadcasting. And Grant's journey through the television industry from his working class background, being a founder of this phenomenally successful TV company, I think would be fascinating. Exactly like the sort of person we want to get on to. So Grant Mansfield is someone we'll have to reach out to. Marvin, thank you so much for joining us. It's been really interesting. I could go on and on and learn more, but this has been really useful. I've really enjoyed it. And thank you very much for unwrapping your career for us today. All right. Thank you. Hope it was useful. This podcast is sponsored by We Are Futures. To find out more about We Are Futures and how we can introduce your brand, business or organisation to the mass markets of tomorrow, visit www.wearefutures.com. Make sure to search for Careers Unwrapped in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or anywhere else podcasts are found. Remember to click subscribe so you don't miss out on any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at We Are Futures, thanks for listening.